Section 64 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Okite, Rockford, Illinois. The World Story, Volume 13, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 64, Just Before the War, 1858, by Morris Schaff. Sometime during the winter of 1857-58, to 58, I received from the Honorable Samuel S. Cox, member of Congress from Ohio, representing the district composed of Licking, Franklin, and Pickaway, an appointment as cadet at West Point. I know it was wintertime, for across the vanished years I can see the family gathered before the big wood fire, and I can see my father, who had been to Newark and had stopped at the Kirkersville post office, coming in, clad in his greatcoat, and bearing in his hand a large and significant-looking official letter. Removing his coat and adjusting his glasses, he opened the communication from Washington and read my appointment. Oh, the quiet radiance of my mother's face. Never, I think, did the fire burn so cheerily as ours burnt that night, and somehow, I am fain to believe, the curling smoke communicated the news to the old farm, for the fields, how often I had wandered over them from childhood. Oh, yes, how often I had seen the cattle grazing, the corn tasseling, and their sweet pomp of daisies and clover, and shocks of ripened wheat, all seemed to greet me the next morning as I walked out to feed the sheep. We sat long round the fire, and read and re-read the entrance requirements, both physical and mental, as set forth in the circular accompanying the appointment. This circular, prepared by Jefferson Davis, Secretary of War, himself a graduate of West Point, announced that only about a third of all who entered were graduated and counseled the appointee that, unless he had an aptitude for mathematics, etc., it might be better for him not to accept the appointments. Thus he would escape the mortification of failure for himself and family. In view my lack of opportunity to acquire more than the simplest rudiments of an education in any branch, I wonder now that I dared to face the ordeal. But how the future gleams through the gates of youth! It was in the days before competitive examinations, when appointments to West Point and Annapolis were coveted and usually secured by the sons of leaders of business, political influence, and social standing, and ours was the capital district. At that time our country differed widely from that in which we are now living, and so great have been the changes that, could the leading merchants of our cities of fifty years ago or the farmers who settled amid the primeval timber of the West return, they could not distinguish one street from another, and would look in vain for the fields and woods that met their eyes from the doorstep. The population of the country, now rising eighty millions, was less than thirty-two millions, not counting the territories, and of these, nineteen millions were in the northern or free states, and twelve in the southern or slave states. The frontier was along the western boundary of Arkansas, and thence north to the Canadian line. The great tide of emigration that set in with the building of the National Road 
was still flowing west. While the railroads and telegraph were just beginning to push their way thither. Steamboats, called floating palaces, could be seen at almost every bend of the beautiful Ohio, and on every long reach of the solemnly impressive Mississippi. Practically all the vast area lying west of the Hudson was devoted to agriculture, while the South, as from the early days, was still raising cotton and tobacco, and finding itself year after year dropping farther and farther behind the more progressive North in commercial weight and importance. But there were no great fortunes at that time, either North or South. It is safe to say that there were not throughout the land a score of men worth a million dollars. If an estate amounted to fifty thousand dollars, it was considered large. And yet under those conditions there were refinement, courage, good manners, and wide knowledge, qualities that went to the making of gentlemen. Colleges called universities were springing up everywhere over the land. Irving, Poe, Hawthorne, and Bancroft, Longfellow, Cooper, Whittier, and Emerson had laid the foundations for our literature. In public life the foremost statesmen of the time were Benton, Cass, Corwin, Cox, Douglas, Chase, Wade, and Giddings in the West, Seward, Hale, Banks, Sumner, and Adams in the East. While the South counted among its leaders such men as Jefferson Davis, and Quitman of Mississippi, Alexander H. Stevens in Tombs of Georgia, and Hunter and Mason of Virginia. Besides these, there were Breckinridge and Crittenden of Kentucky, Benjamin and Slidell of Louisiana, Wigfall of Texas, and Yancey of Alabama. Not to mention a group of arrogant and almost frenzied agitators for secession who seemed to rise right up from the ground that was thrown out when Calhoun's grave was dug, and to whom may be attributed in great measure the dire adversity of our Southland. The war with Mexico was still fresh in the memories of the people, and the majority of the officers who had gained distinction in it were still living, and also veterans here and there of the War of 1812. And to emphasize the march of time, I may say that a frequent visitor at my father's house was a French veteran by the name of Genet, who had actually fought under Napoleon at Waterloo. Save with Mexico, our country had been at peace with all of the world for nearly fifty years. Its future, save as shadowed by slavery, glowed warmly, and pride and love for it burned in every heart. The army consisted of 16,435 officers and men. Its organization was made up of engineers, topographical engineers, ordnance, supply departments, artillery, cavalry, dragoons, and mounted rifles. The heaviest guns in the forts were 10-inch columbiads, and the small arms were all muzzle-loading smoothbores and rifles. Grant, in utter obscurity and almost utter poverty, and fronting an outlook of utter hopelessness, was a clerk in a store at Galena. Farragut was sailing the seas, and not dreaming of the days to come, when, lashed to the rigging, he would lead his squadron into the Battle of Mobile Bay. Lee was commanding a post in Texas, and probably had never heard of the little town of Gettysburg. Cedric and Thomas and Jeb Stewart were all on the Texas frontier. 
and the future seemed to offer only a slow chance for promotion. And yet, in less than five years, they had risen to enduring frame. Stonewall Jackson was an instructor at the Virginia Military Institute, the West Point of the South. But he was dwelling more on the sins of this earth than on its honors, either military or civil, and was regarded by his intimates as a queer and uninteresting type of belated roundhead. Within five years he was to rise to the pinnacle of fame, his star to the country's zenith. Sherman was teaching in Louisiana, little dreaming that he should one day lead a victorious army from Atlanta to the sea. Longstreet, the Johnstons, the Hills, Hooker, Bragg, and Forrest, the latter a slave dealer, but the ablest cavalry leader in the Confederacy, and many another in the blue and the gray, unknown outside of local and professional associations, rose on the stormy tides of the mighty rebellion. Of these, Reynolds, who fell at Gettysburg, Webb, Warren, McCook, Howard, Griffin, Schofield, Hartsuff, Saxon, Weitzel, and Hazen of the Union, Hardy, Beauregard, Fitzley, Alexander, and Field of the Confederate Army, were on duty as officers at West Point. In the corps as cadets were Wilson, Upton, Harding, Horace Porter, Merritt, Custer, and Mackenzie of the North, while bound in ties of friendship with them were Ramsour, Wheeler, Rosser, Pelham, Young, Semmings, and Deering of the South. Whenever and wherever I have thought of them, as officers or cadets, and it has been many and many a time, imagination has painted them marching unconsciously to the field of the high test of the soldier and the gentleman. The war between the states was gathering much faster than we realized. Every little while, as from a cloud, sounded low and heavy rumblings, but like distant thunder in the summer they died away. And notwithstanding they came again heavier, and at shorter intervals, hopes of peace like birds in the fields sang on. Everywhere there was a growing fever in the blood. The progress of events in the seventy-five years during which they had been bound together in the Constitution had forced freedom and slavery, so mutually and innately antagonistic, nearer and nearer to each other. The closer the approach, slavery on the one hand saw herself growing more and more repulsive, while on the other the South, with increasing anger and alarm, saw in the cold look of the self-controlled North that her happiness, prosperity, social fabric, and political supremacy were threatened, if not doomed. In the Ordinance of 1787, she had seen herself excluded from all the territory north of the Ohio. In 1820, forever prohibited in all the territory ceded by France and known as Louisiana, north of 36 degrees 30 minutes. In 1846, excluded from all the territory purchased from Mexico. In 1850, California admitted as a free state, and the slave trade abolished in the District of Columbia. In 1854, slavery was expelled from the territory of Kansas, the blood of northern men dripping from its hands, after a savage and brutal contest with freedom. During this process of being hemmed in, the South became more and more irritable, and unfortunately, more domineering.
Naturally enough, the social, idealistic, and temperamental differences elementary in the natures and traditions of the people grew apace. We in the West, especially those of us with Southern affiliations, hated slavery and hated New England, but generally sympathized with the South. Yet in her arrogance she fast assumed an attitude of condescension and superiority over us all. Meanwhile, the abolitionist, despised on all hands, had begun the most systematic, deliberate, and stubborn crusade that was ever waged against an institution. And this crusade was carried on until, at last, the harassed South demanded, and Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law. It was a law hateful in every feature, arousing the indignation of every natural impulse, and humiliating to the self-respect of every official called on for its execution. Then Uncle Tom's cabin appeared. From door to door it went, and slavery heard its knell from every hearthstone before which it was read. From that time, an open hostility to the institution was in the plank of every northern platform, and constantly engaged benevolent and religious associations in earnest discussion. There was no respite, day or night, thenceforward, for the great body of the people, who, standing between the fire-eaters on the one hand and the abolitionists on the other, were ready and longing to do anything for the peace, glory, and welfare of the South, as well as the North. As early as 1850, South Carolina and Mississippi, in their provincial egotism, had threatened secession, declaring in a bullying way that they would not submit to degradation in the Union, referring to the barricades that people of the free states had thrown up against the extension of the institution of slavery. Meanwhile, Sumner, with manners more imperious and egotism more colossal than the southern states had ever exhibited, assailed slavery and, indirectly, the representatives of the South in Congress, with a kind of dogmatic statesmanship and scholastic venom, the latter intended to irritate and succeeding in its purpose, roared out in pompous and reverberating declamation. The effect of these deplorable extremes was to weaken the natural ties that bound the sections, to drive out friendship and goodwill from many a home, and to substitute in their places deep and dangerous ill-feelings. Now, as I look back over it all, never, it seems to me, did provincial egotism born of slavery and bigotry born of political and moral dogma pursue their ways more blindly to the frightful wastes of blood and treasure. But let this question rest. The fire-eater is gone, and the abolitionist is gone. Were they to come back, the surprise of both of them at the results would be astounding. However that may be, in due time an idea took possession of the North, as if it had seen a vision. The Democratic Party began to break before it, and the Republican Party sprang up from Maine to California with almost the speed of a phantom. When I finally left home for West Point, James Buchanan was president, and drifting into a deeper eclipse than has befallen any other who has filled that high office. Abraham Lincoln was still unknown beyond the prairies of central Illinois. End of section 64 This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Okite, Rockford, Illinois.